We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55, I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our Prime Spark. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. PrimeSpark is designed for women over 55 or close with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of PrimeSpark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Erin Kate Whitcomb, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Erin Kate Whitcomb has delivered exceptional operational and sales results with leadership roles in multiple industries. Her visionary, inclusive, and collaborative approach is aimed at building cultures of integrity and results necessary for any growth-focused company. Balancing honesty with humor, she provides tools for improved communication with particular expertise in bridging the gap between Gen X and millennials. She also is an award-winning playwright and stage actor and is a voiceover artist, and most importantly, is the mother of two incredible 20-something sons. Welcome, Erin Kate. I'm so happy you're here with us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a delight to be here with you. So just getting started, Erin Kate, let me ask you, do you experience getting older? And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why is it that you think that you don't? I like this question as much as I hate it. I like it. I, I experience getting older as, uh, of course, the, there's the physical things. Um, And those are, you know, the things that I used to be able to do, you know, sprite, be a sprite and hop around and and do funny physical comedy and things like that. And also just things like playing tennis and, you know, just doing outdoorsy things uh, are a little harder now than they were. Um, But I have to say, given that my I really, really am enjoying wisdom. And trying to put together something out of a life of experience and to look look ahead and see where I can apply that wisdom um, going forward. Because I, I think I've got another several decades in there. In fact, I'm certain of it. I have stage, was diagnosed with stage four cancer in 2020, and I, I knew it wasn't my time. And I dug in even harder to... Um, you know, put this age thing to work for me and make some decisions that I think I was uh, avoiding for a long time. So 
I think just sort of teeing up the future is where I what how I'm experiencing aging right now. Oh, I love that, Erin Kate. It's teeing up the future. I love that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I talk to a lot of of women and generally speaking, I mean, when I ask them that question or a similar question or they most of the time react like you did that that yeah, physically I can't do exactly what I used to do in the way I used to do it and that's a bummer and da 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 da. da. But other than that, I just I feel better than I ever have and I'm really looking forward to the future. You know, so I think, you know, it's it's a given anymore that women in their 50s can easily imagine living another 30, 40 years. And so that's an entire adult lifetime. So what are we going to do with that time? And exactly. Think, but to think about the development of wisdom and experience and is really is really good because the world certainly needs it right now. Well, and I was also raised in a family of uh, a lot of strong women, and both of my grandmothers lived to be ninety six and ninety eight. And so I, you know, I see uh, past the horizon because of that. And I know people who have lost parents earlier in their lives and they feel like there's a timeline on them that I just simply don't have. Well, it's, um, I'm sure you know this by now. I mean, it's, it's well, it's well publicized by now, but that the attitude we have toward aging has a huge impact on not only major health things, but actually on longevity. So, you know, you feel positive about getting older, you may live seven, seven and a half years longer because of that. That's a long time. Well, I have a little just if I can just interject an anecdotal story about getting older. When I was in college, I was 19 in the theater department and I had this uh, advisor who was, you know, an old drinker. And he would take me to the student union and he'd buy me a glass of wine and we'd have our sessions. He uh, told me that I was going to be the next Eve Arden and that I was um, going to live a life as an actor doing the work, but I was really going to grow into my kingdom when I was in my 50s. And at that time, I thought, I am going to die. Like, I have to wait till I'm in my 50s. This is not fitting the plan. I was supposed to get a, a an Oscar when I was 24 and a Tony when I was 26, because, you know, Tonys are harder, harder to get. So this didn't fit my plan, but it, I did neatly tuck it into my future. And here I am coming up on 58 and uh, I want to call Kip um, and check in with him and say, you know, my my number's up. So what do I need to do to activate, you know, to punch the clock? So, you know, thinking about things in the future and and plotting your life over time, I think it's great to have something to look forward to. And that, and that to me has always been something to look forward to. So aging to me meant I was getting closer to that. I love that. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful, Erin Kate. I love that story. What acting, are you doing acting now? Um, I, I am still an actor, yes. I work less because I'm doing so much with my own business the last few years. And since COVID, things are sort of slow to come back. I was under an understudy for three different roles at, in the San Francisco Playhouse production of Follies. 
So uh, had to learn um, a six minute tap number and two different positions in the tap number that had a full stage of people. So that was fun. And um, three different tracks of lines and songs and all that. Um, and I never went on, but I was delighted to just uh, be working in the space and being back in the theater. So um, I think I'm going to be dusting that all off uh, for the general, they call these general auditions where you audition for multiple theater companies at the same time. Um, and I'll be doing that in February, 2024 and hopefully booking a couple of things for the year. You'll have 2024. Okay. So you still will only be 58, 59. So, you know, it's, it, you're still within your time frame. Yep. Just got to make the cut here. <laughs> and it's, and you also say you're a playwright. Yes, I had been a playwright. I um, was asked to write a play for a theater company in San Francisco when I was about 35 and I they asked for me to perform it. So it was going to be a one woman show starring me, written by me, directed by them. Um, was nervous about that, having never written a one woman show and the idea of like transitions getting on and off the stage and changing characters and all that just was it just seemed complicated. And so I asked if I could write a two person play and I did. And the play was about it was basically my best friend who I'd lost to AIDS when we were about a few years before that um and driving his ashes to his mother's house in michigan from san francisco um and so i had somebody else playing me essentially driving the ashes across the country and and she was listening to tapes that he had made her about where to go and where to stop um and i played everybody that she ran into along the way and did that did that did you present it Yes. Yeah, so that ran for uh, about five weeks in San Francisco. It was scheduled for three and it got extended twice. And um, I was nominated for uh, Best New Play in San Francisco. I was nominated for an Ovation Award in Los Angeles. Also won an award with Barrier Theater Critics Circle, um, both as a playwright and as an actor. It was sure fun, I have to say, you know, and I was working full time um, at a hospital and was the manager of Department of Pediatrics and literally would just get in the car after work and, you know, drive to the theater. I would use my lunch breaks in my office to write a scene for the night. Um, the director would tell me, you know, we need some a, a love scene in this. So I'd write a love scene. <laughs> And because it was so clear to me what this was about and, you know, that essentially the, the lead character was played by somebody else, but it was my voice, really. It was very, very easy for me to write dialogue. And I, I just really loved it. And it was, a, I, I'm very, I think, became pretty adept at switching gears between uh, work and creativity, work and art, so to speak. That, that has been a skill that has been developed over, you know, 30 some years of, of working, um, sitting in an office, in a corporate office for the most part, and now my own business and uh, going off to the theater or going to a, a set for do a commercial or, you know, a voiceover job. What a nice combination though. I mean, you know, have a life. Those are, those haven't, I haven't done the art creative part of it, but I've certainly done the corporate part of it. And those two things seem very different to me in many, many ways and a nice balance to life. They definitely 
were. And I, I also actively kept them siloed. People at work didn't necessarily know, need to know that I was an actor and my actor friends didn't need to know that I was, you know, a senior leader at a corporation. It just, it, I, I would, I would, I tried little things to, to uh, test the waters and I was right. It was right. You were right to keep them siloed. Yes. Yes. Tell tell me about, because I'm fascinated with your work with uh, communication between Gen X and millennials. I am very interested in intergenerational communication. One of the things I'm interested in is trying to do away with the um, titles of generations, because I think that has exacerbated the problem. That's a separate issue. So how did you first get interested in that? And what is your approach to it? Because I am really interested. One of the biggest struggles at work really is a, comes down to communication and um, and honestly fear. We're often protective, um, invulnerable at work. We need to be seen as highly productive, contributing in meetings, there's just lots of, of ways that we're expected to perform at work. And um, we have learned in our, I'm going to use the word, I'm sorry, Sarah, I know you don't like it, generation, <laughs> the, boomer, the boomers and the Gen Xers, you know, we came from this world of meritocracy and that you worked hard, um, you worked long hours, you showed up early, you did uh, working lunches and you earned your way to wherever you were going. It was never, ever, ever going to be handed to us. We had to respect those who came before us. We had to learn from them and uh, work our way into the position that becomes vacant when someone else has moved on. So I think, you know, from a communication standpoint, um, our dis our, our, we are sort of in some ways disabled in our ability to communicate with the next groups of work. See how I avoided generation. You can use that word. <laughs> yeah, you can use that word. So when the millennials came up, millennial, by the way, was, was an assigned term that came from essentially a, a, a 60 minutes episode where they talked about this new generation of entitled people who felt like just coming to work was enough. And that started a, a massive conversation that was pointed in one direction for a very long time. If we think about this more critically and understand how each of us came into our adulthood and the things that we uh, gathered up uh, to arm ourselves or to look into the future, we're, we're all trying to figure it out. Like the worst you know, it's really hard to be in your 20s, for example. So the millennials, or which is also Gen Y, were brought up uh, in a generation, you know, around 9-11, right? They were aware of 9-11 when it was happening. And there was also social media. And so there was a, a sense of, they needed to have a sense of psychological safety. Everyone around them was telling them this was risky and don't do this and don't do that. And, you know, all, all of these things around social media um, but also around politics and the world. And so the parents of that generation kept them fairly close. And this is where the term helicopter parenting came in. So while these kids are incredibly 
for the most part, very smart and more worldly than I think we were. Um, they're also, uh, we're, we're brought up with this edict to save the world and to self-advocate. I was never taught to self-advocate and I don't know many people that were. I did it anyway because I'm, I was broken, but these younger people were, were taught to say what they need. And so when they bring that into the workplace, you know, they're working in, in classrooms, there was a lot more project-based learning where collaboration was really important to them. They also partly with social media, um, you know, and I, I would need to look more into the actual studied piece of this, but um, the need to be liked. And I don't know that we would identify boomers as needing to be liked. You know, we all like to, of course, like to be liked and like to be productive. But um, this is a, a, a core rooted need for millennials um, to need to be liked. And being liked includes things like being at the table where decisions are made and being appreciated for the contributions that they make. They feel like the people they're sitting next to are that they're just as good as them. And why are they getting paid more than I am, despite any kind of years of service. So it, it really was pretty shocking uh, to engage with this generation and, and know what to do. And instead of letting them shine their light, uh, we were actively putting a lid on them. So from, from my perspective um, in writing my book, I was looking at these things because I was engaging and I, I was managing teams um, of millennials and was observing some behaviors. Some of them were simply toxic behaviors because of where I was working, but, you know, I worked really hard to arm them with the tools they needed to, to get to the places that they said they wanted to go. Some of them didn't want to do the work to get to that next thing. But then again, maybe I was from a generational perspective, um, making them jump through hoops that they didn't think they needed to jump through. I, I, as I started my own business in 2019 and started thinking about writing a book and the business was really focused around um, leadership development and culture, I started to identify some of these dynamics were potentially generational. So I started doing some work on that, doing research, understanding uh, the Gen Z that's now entering the workforce. And by the way, everybody's complaining about everybody else. Every generation complains about the next one coming which I actually found incredibly funny, but also, you know, looking back on it, of course, and we're all coming from, you know, different sets of circumstances. And one of the ways that um, generation is identified is, is growing up around a unifying event. And I'm speaking about Americans. So events that would happen in America because our generations are, are distinct from other countries because other things happen other places we grow up, so to speak, as a unit of people who have gone through a similar experience and therefore our, our generation has been defined. And it's not, it's, sometimes it's multiple things, but typically it's defined as one or two. And so we're talking about wars and we, we know this from the perspective of World War I and World War II and um, in between the depression. So identifying these events um, does have a lot to do with who we are and how we present ourselves in the world. Of course, that's not the whole story. Of course, we are individuals. Of course, we're raised by 
different parents in a different socioeconomic status in different homes, in different cities and states. So this is one piece of a really big puzzle. And so one of the things that made me focus on this was um, simply trying to unlock one piece of that. I felt like we all understand sort of on, you know, not, not in a, I don't know if you listen to Hidden Brain, I love that show, um, where they dig in with research scientists on, on things that, that uh, ways that we behave in, in the world. And I'm not talking about a scientific, scientific deep dive, but I'm talking about this need to be present and to figure out one piece at a time. And that, that presence is listening to the individual, is identifying the circumstance, is paying attention to what the big picture is. Um, I'm as much a big picture person as I am a person in the details. And so I feel like I speak a lot of different languages. And I think we as women at work and maybe at home as well um, are very highly adaptive and speak a lot of different languages. And we're constantly, whether we know it or not, putting these puzzles together about how to relate to human beings. So I just tried to put more form around it, I guess. That's my really long answer to your question. <laughs> what are differences between, say, um, because what uh, you have said that you you were looking at the, the differences in communication between um, Gen Xers and millennials. What's what's the difference there? Well, I would say because we are, I'm I'm speaking from a Gen X perspective, and I'm like you know a hair's breadth away from being a boomer. I learned to be direct, to ask questions. And so there's a part of me that expects people to ask more questions. And when I realized that they weren't asking a lot of questions, that they're, they're positioning these, that these um, Gen Y millennials were sort of positioned in this uh, braced state of, I need, to, I need to show that I know everything. I need to show that I'm I'm worth being promoted. And that seems like, um, you know, and promoted, I, I also want to add the caveat that um, millennials and Gen Z were raised with this notion that they needed to save the world. And so the only way to save the world is to put on the Superman suit. And I can't put on the Superman suit until you give it to me. And so some of that um, communication for me was I was having an expectation that they were going to ask more questions. And when they didn't ask questions, I started asking them questions about what did they want? What did they see themselves doing and how I can help to get them there? Um, and I think this is part of everybody's development is to identify a mentor and whether you're chosen or not, I feel like we all need to take the position of mentor to people so I started asking more questions and what I what came out was a much more vulnerable side than I expected, a much more vulnerable side than um, I would have brought to work. My vulnerability comes out maybe in humor, making fun of myself, a little bit of self-deprecating humor. Um, but in this folks, it, it, it can be pretty raw. I was brought on to a panel to speak with a, a bunch of venture capitalists and their entrepreneurs that they were funding. And the person who interviewed me before this was a self-identified millennial. She was totally fine with being called that. 
And she started out the whole conversation talking about how she's afraid of the dark, that she her phone bill was still paid by her parents. She was in this very high marketing position with a very large venture capital firm. And I was absolutely shocked that this person just like led with vulnerability. And so um, in terms of how do I how to communicate, um, I felt like I had to match a little. So demonstrating my vulnerability alongside hers felt like the way to engage in that conversation so that it felt safe for her to talk with me. This is just one tiny example. Um, uh, they also, and, and again, when I say they, this is a, gen, a, a very general statement, really want to be part of that decision-making process. So however you include your millennial employees um, or friends or uh, you know neighbors, part of that need is that connection. And so making a personal connection first is very, very important. And they want to know that they are making a difference, making a difference at work. So they need more uh, positive reinforcement than I think we ever did, or frankly, that we would ever admit to needing. Remember, not <laughs> no, it was not uh, normal to us to um, show any sense of vulnerability or to be needy in any way. And I've said this in the past, but you know, I have an Italian mother and a, and a Marine father. Everything in my household was pretty direct. And we had a lot of fun and there was rigor in our household. You know, the, the, that directness was not working for me in the same way as it had in the past. So being direct with millennials was uh, almost felt to them. And I'm just completely going overboard by saying this, but a little abusive. Like they needed to feel appreciated, brought to the table, asked more questions, asked what do they think without asking, without having a filtered question about like, like um, what do you think about having a, a 401k plan with an employer match? Like that's very, that's way too specific. What do you think about the benefits program? What would, what would you like to see in our benefits program would be maybe a better question. Um, I think we are in our directness, uh, steer the conversation in the way that we know to steer it. And by asking more wide open questions, you're opening that collaboration and encouraging out of the box thinking. And I think that's that's a piece that really helps us in the innovative space. When you ask that kind of question, then does the person answering assume that that will happen, whatever they say? <laughs> that is the best question, Sarah, because this is exactly where we where we need to put our, our management skills to work. So th that is, in my experience, that is the fear that we all have, is that if we're going to ask that question and it's open-ended, are we inviting a massive conversation that we cannot deliver on? So it's too scary to open that door and I'm not gonna ask that question. But things have changed. And I think part of, you know, maybe there are a lot more committees in workplaces where people get together to um, solve a problem or identify a, a potential risk. A lot of it ends up being about employee retention, these committees. 
um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, food service programs at work. So people getting together in these small groups to solve these problems are a really great way of, of asking the question and then letting them talk it through and present something. Yes, and I do think we are beholden to some degree to listen to those conversations. I think asking one person, what do you think about this? Or asking five people, what do you think about this? And then they all agree on something and suddenly you're responsible for making a, a complete directional change. I think what that actually does is open up a broader conversation and say, we're, we are, we seem to be missing the boat here. Like we're not on, we're not on the same mode of transportation. So when you ask that question, I think we do need to be a little more brave about accepting the answers that we get. I know when I was um, in corporate for all those years, I would say to, um, and this is reflecting my generation, I would say to um, different managers, well, if you ask those people what they think, you need to be prepared for the for the outcome. So make sure if if you have no intention necessarily of doing what they say, but rather you making the decision after you hear everything, then make sure you know, they know that in advance. That you know I'm going to make the decision, but I want to hear from you. Um, no, no, that's absolutely right. And that you know I I was I was um, encouraged in the work work world to do the same thing. But then I was seeing some people, some leaders who are not at their best, um, left with that kind of decision. And and the truth is, they weren't really listening to feedback. They had already decided. So the thing that I think is um, is shocking, interesting, uh, is that they think people don't already know that that's what's happening. People smell that a mile away. They're going to do whatever they want. This is a, this is an uh, an, an act of asking us what we want. They don't really care. So don't tell them the truth. You know, it's the same thing. I, I'm not exactly the same thing, but you know, when people leave businesses, there used to be these things and there still are in some places, exit interviews where you're supposed to talk about your experience of working there. Um, what went well, what didn't go well in the more toxic environments, more difficult environments where that would be useful. That's the most dangerous place to do an exit interview, right? That's the perception that they left because their manager was poor. Their the the dynamics and meetings were awful. Um, expectations were not clearly stated, or expectations were out of line with reality. Things like that that would really help an organization, but people just can't get out of the door fast enough in those situations. And they're certainly not going to rat on anybody. Um, so it's that the the cycle of feedback is a bit, a totally different scenario um, that I'm absolutely fascinated by. I'm a I'm a truth teller, and I am pretty likely to say why I'm leaving places um, if someone asks me. If they're not going to ask me, that's fine too. But I think that piece of the system is broken because people aren't hearing the things they need to hear in order to improve. And part of that is just simply not asking the questions. One of the things that I'm interested in is um, in, in stuff I used to do, I would tell people when it was a cultural difference, 
you know, I, I was teaching one thing, but people who were in the class were from a different culture and it was it was against what their culture. And I I would say to them, well, it depends on where you're going to do your work. And if you want to be successful, if you want to be successful in the West, in a corporation, then you probably need to do this because that's what's considered to be appropriate, proper and good behavior. If you are going to do your um work somewhere else, then that's okay. So it depends on where you're going to do your work and whether or not you want to be successful. But I realized when I did that, I was encouraging them to buy into the cultural norms. And I was doing that because I knew that that would help them be successful and not doing that, they wouldn't be successful. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, it's still a conundrum to me. There's no way possible to change all of the norms in large organizations to be more accepting of a variety of um, generational approaches to, to life. What do you what do you advise millennials if they want to be successful? Well, first of all, many millennials are successful. Yeah. So they're um, they're now and this is I find this wildly amusing in the same way that I'm sure people found, uh, you know, my generation wildly not amusing of latchkey kids. Their millennials are really struggling with this, the next generation, Gen Z. They don't know how to work. That Gen they, that, uh, The millennials think Gen Zs don't know how to work. Yes. And that it's unreasonable for <clears throat> Gen Zs to work when they want to. And, you know, it, it, before COVID, there were a lot of places that that saw this sort of hybrid, you know, having some work from home days. They were very, it was very distasteful to them. That was, it felt like, you know, the inmates running the asylum. If you let them work from home, they're not going to do anything. They're, we're all going to be just messing around and nobody's going to get anything done. And we're not going to be able to reach each other. That was a lack of trust. It was a lack of um uh, the ability to see beyond what the norms are today. The norms today were you show up at eight, you leave at five, six, seven, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, you are there at eight. If you're there at eight Oh two, you're late every day. Well, we work from home and we sign on earlier because we don't have a commute. And then we start seeing some, maybe some benefits to productivity and maybe some downturns. But I guess the point is that the way we flex into change makes it makes a big difference. And sometimes it, that change is, is put upon us. But again, these Gen Z came, were graduating from college around the time that COVID hit. And so they know how to be working online. They know how to attend classes. They know how to get work done. Um, they know how to work in between those times. And they are sort of carrying that work into their jobs. You'll see, I don't know if anybody out there is um, active in job search, but you'll see all of the listings now say in office, hybrid or work from home, because that's where we are today. That Can you imagine applying for a job five years ago that was hybrid, meaning Nobody would have come been into the office known, a couple days a week. Nobody would then, have known what that meant, actually. No, absolutely. You know that this next generation is uh, doing, to some degree, the same thing that millennials did, and I'm going to use this term loosely, to the Gen X uh, leadership that they had, and that is 
asking for what they need, asking for what, what it would take to do a good job for them. Um, and then again, as individuals, some people really, really like being in an office and around people. Some people just really thrive on that. Other people, you know, a, a little at a time is fine. So hybrid is good. Other people were perfectly happy staying at home all day long. Um, so this is actually a good development. As long as you figure out how to make it work for your organization and what your deliverables are. So that's the work. And when you invite a new generation in to collaborate um, and you still got on board a couple of generations ahead, that's a, a perfect group of people to solve problems. It's absolutely amazing from a business perspective to have all those voices at the table. And that's what we want. Oh, that's just fascinating, Erin Kate. I We're way out of time, but I realize I am, because of my generation, I totally understand um, how nice it is to be home and, and get a lot of work done. And I have spent my whole entire adult life on interpersonal communication and how important face-to-face -face communication is. Mm -hmm. And so for me to build a team with trust and a culture with trust uh, where there's trust, you have to be face-to-face. And that I know that that's so really outdated, but boy, I tell you, I probably will take that to the grave with me because it is just so deep inside me. So we need people like you who are saying that is the best combination of workers to get problems solved because for a lot of us, that uh, is hard to understand. So we have to come to an end, Erin Kate. This has been absolutely wonderful for me. No. <laughs> I miss you, Sarah. <laughs> so I know people are going to want to get in touch with you. How can they do that? I have a website called www.working-courage.com. So you can uh, hit the contact in there. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Erin-Kate Whitcomb, W-H-I-T-C-O-M-B. And I also, if you're interested in just learning a little bit more about the generational difference, um, I, I put together four chapters, non-linear, but chapters with tools that you can start using to, I guess, identify generational difference and, and places where you can help yourself and those around you to grow a little bit around that. And these are free chapters um, at working-courage.com forward slash freebies um, and just download that. It's just a PDF. Um, and I, I hope you find it interesting and useful to you. I really want, I, I really want generational, I want to, I want, I want to blur the lines between these generations a little bit more. Thank you, Erin Kate and everybody. That's our time today. Please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Erin Kate Whitcomb. And don't forget, you can find her at working-courage.com. If you want the book, four chapters of this wonderful book, working-courage.com forward slash 
freebies. So download. Or you could buy the whole darn thing on Amazon. Yeah, or you could buy the whole darn thing on Amazon. So thank you for being with us today. Spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, primesparkwomen.com, and get my free spark guide, Seven Questions to Ignite Your Spark, to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.